don't worry about me looking at my BlackBerry. That's just where all my notes are. You don't mind if I make a call during the proceeding then? I actually don't. I think that would be that would be quite entertaining. <laughs> so I switch off my phone? Uh, no, no, you don't have to. You don't have to. I, I never actually tell people to, to do so because I kind of want these to be kind of... A, it has to feel real. So if things get... If people get interrupted, they get interrupted. That's kind of part of life. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better Please make me better I want to get better 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 acquainted with you Okay, so before I get carried away with myself there Today we're getting better acquainted with Eric Hello Eric Hello David (laughs) David, wow, that's great um, what did you expect, Dave? Well, Dave is what I go by, but, but I, I, I like David. It reminds me of being a child, and it's what people call me at work, which is a strange thing. It's half of my name anyway. <laughs> half your surname. That's a giveaway. Yeah, that is a giveaway. How do you know me? I know you because of your father. This is a great problem. Uh, your father and I worked together many, many years ago. Yeah. At a place called Data in Soho Square. Data was a film production company, a documentary film production company, I think created originally by Paul Rother. And um, when I arrived, Peter, your father, had arrived there just after the war. And I arrived some years later than that, in the mid-50s, late-50s. I was sent there by a gentleman called Stuart Lake, who was one of the original cinema documentarists from the 1930s, one of John Grierson's mob. It was interesting because, in fact, I, I went off on location very quickly and I met a few people on that particular, in that, in that company, until one day I went into a pub in Soho, which is where, of course, the company was. This is towards the lunchtime it was, with one member of the cast, if I can call them the cast, and he said, I'd like to introduce you to a friend of mine. And this friend of his was propped up at the end of the bar on a stool. And he said, this is Peter Pickering. And that must have been about 1956, seven, somewhere around that mark. And um, that was the first introduction I had to him. We had a rapport. God knows what it was. Perhaps it was just that I bought him a drink and he didn't buy me one. (laughs) But um, immediately it was set up. And... uh, and it just went on from there, and uh, it went through thick and thin. And uh, when I say thick and thin, I just meant uh, he did other things and I did other things. <laughs> His were thick and mine were thin. And um, there was a particular time when I went to Denmark and I stayed there for about a year, and uh, we corresponded sort of kind of once or twice a week. And I think I still have all his letters. So it was a relationship which... Uh, was established in the documentary film industry and in a sense never quite left it. And it went through many manifestations as his life did as well. And um, then once upon a time, he later in his second marriage, I think it was, he had a couple of children, one of whom was you. Yes. Will that answer your question? It did. Um, And it it was a very nice answer, I enjoyed it. Um, I should say we're out in my back garden, which is why people can probably hear the dog next door. It's a kind of late evening time. The evening is coming. The sun is out. What do you do now? Well, I mean, I'm, uh, most, I worked all my life in films and documentary films, well, drama as well, particularly in the BBC, and uh, withdrew or retired or whatever you say about it a few years ago, and I took up copywriting, and I've been doing that for the last five or ten years, and apart from that, uh, trying to pull together a lot of the bits and pieces I've been writing over the years, in between the filmmaking and other experiences, such as getting married and having children, and watching them growing up, and trying to grow up myself. That's interesting, because I mean, I guess... Dad's in a very similar place to you now, in that he's sort of 
looking through all of his old writing and that he's done in between having children and working. How are you finding the, the process of, of going through all of these old, old things? Well, um, I suppose, generally speaking, confusing. But I, one would say that, wouldn't one? But if I can just paint the picture for a moment, I might explain it better. Because every time I went on location, which was many, many times, I would come back after the location was ended with an idea. And it might be for a short story, it might be for a play, it might be for a book. And I would hasten to the typewriter and bash away. And I only got so far before I went off on the next location. So <laughs> these bits and pieces multiplied over the years until, in fact, there's an attic full of, to put it mildly, bits and pieces. Um, some of them are quite well developed. There are an awful lot of them. And I thought, well, one day, you know, when I retire and I inherit all the money I'm not inheriting, I'll sit back and I'll put them all together again. Well, it didn't quite happen like that. But, in a sense, it is happening. Because a few weeks ago, I thought, come on, get your arse into gear and get moving. So, I went to the attic and sifted through all 10, 20, 30, 40 different projects and thought, wow. So I chose one and started to not so much bring it up to date, it was collated or collected because many of these articles or pieces of writing I committed to typewriter and then scanned them into a computer 25 years ago when you had five and a half inch or five and three quarter inch floppy disks. So in fact, the, all of the stuff that's in that attic is now in many, many different formats. So I didn't realize that the biggest task would be to start collating them, pulling them together before I could actually do some work on them. The second thing was, well, why would I want to do work on them anyway? They've been and they're gone, they've, you can move on to something else. But there was just this niggling f feeling that, well, maybe something is worthwhile. And at least if you could finish something, or all of them, but I've got enough years to finish all of them. You never know. You never know, but um, at least if I did that, there would be, oh God, I hate to use words like legacy, uh, but something just of yourself that you've physically left behind. Although, in fact, I will have left behind many films as well. It's not as if there won't be material there if anyone, <laughs> if anyone is daft enough to want to research it in 50 years' time or a 1,000 years' time, which I doubt. But at the moment... It's in its infancy insofar as I have not brought any one piece together yet or yeah. any one project together yet. But it's there to be brought together, and it may be brought together. And if I do bring them together, obviously they're not for publishing because no, no, no publisher would bother to publish them. But I quite like to you do something... You never know that either. Yeah, but I quite like to do something that your dad taught me, um, indirectly anyway. I'd like to get them printed... Self-publishing. Yeah, I don't actually mean publishing. I just, just mean printing. I just mean printing because you can print on Lulu. Yes. But you can also publish on Lulu. This is a, an internet site. An internet Lulu, site. Lulu.com. Exactly. It's it's kind of self-publishing. But you see, what I'm trying to do is excuse myself by saying it's not. I don't want to publish them. I want to get them printed. Yeah. And you can do that. And they look like a proper book exactly yeah. now it may be that if they look like if there's a shelf full of things that look like proper books somebody sometime in the future might read some of them but if they are in the condition that they are at the moment which is dog-eared coffee stained bits and pieces of paper from 20 30 40 years ago nobody's going to d give well, a damn about them they're all going to go in the bin when you've printed those books i would certainly like to read one of them at least one of them maybe more if i like the first one it depends how long you've got well, it does depend how long I've got. You do indeed never know. Actually, I'm going to just check that it's recording and I'm going to move it slightly away. I think so. Am yes. I sitting too close to it? I think you, yeah, a little bit too close. Well, you see, perhaps it's better that I better turn 
because I have to be directly to it. Well, it's not it's not that directional, but I, oh, isn't it? Like you know, it has quite a wide wide range. It looks a bit ridiculous today because it's got its windshield on and it's uh, looking like a big paintbrush. It's not. It's like a cat. I'm going to stroke it anymore. That's that's true. Well, I think it's a it's it's a little bit more intimidating than I like my microphone to be for people to uh, to be talking to. It, it looks kind of like a muppet or something. Yeah. What do you think about the the internet? That's one of the things that the internet is brought to the world is the possibility for people to self-publish in that way well i do want to qualify that david because you keep using the term self-publish true and i keep refusing to use it and i i, I completely respect your your decision to do that but because it, you're not it, publishing it you're just buying a, a copy of a book for yourself yeah. i understand that I, but but that site only exists you can only do that you can call it what you like. Absolutely. But you can only do it because of the internet. Yes, because I could go to a hundred of these uh, private publishers, so to speak, and ask them to print up the book, mm. and they'd charge me a fortune. They would. Or a few hundred quid that's at least. They, that's what people used to do, and yeah. it cost them a lot of and money. and there's still many of these firms around. Absolutely. But I think it's because the people who actually send their manuscripts to them sneakingly hope that, nevertheless, they'll be able to push them on yes. to publishing. Yeah. I don't have any sneaking hopes. No, no, no. I, I don't need to. No, I mean, I'm not being pompous about it. It's no, no, just not necessary. When you were born, there was no internet. When you were 40, there was no internet, probably. No, no. And now it has happened. Yeah. How do you feel about that? As far as I'm concerned, I mean, I'm pu- this is a purely personal feeling. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm not trying to make a judgment about internet. I mean, I think the whole thing is such a, an overwhelming phenomenon. Yeah. I wouldn't even be able to describe it to no, somebody no. from another planet. But presumably if somebody came from another planet, he'd know about the internet anyway. When I was born, there was no internet. I find it amazing. I mean, people who are born now, they don't find it amazing, but I find it amazing. Oh, I think it's astonishing. Yeah. Yeah, And it's kind of uplifting in a way to think that, you know, from Bell's telephone, it eventually became the internet. Mm. It's a long long haul and a short stretch. And I, I can't, still can't get my... Not being a scientist, I can't get my head around the fact that it is there yeah. and it does what it does, and I can access everything and anything that I wish from it. And it's an, a constant source of joy and amazement to me. But at the same time, I use it rather sparingly because I don't belong to pl- things like Facebook or mm. I don't blog or flog or clog or whatever you do. <laughs> I just uh, use it very practically. In the same way that uh, when I first learned about the computer typewriter, what do we call it? The um, uh, word processor. The word processor. Thank you. I remember I resisted this for some time because, of course, it had this sticking block, I should think. I thought, well, wait a minute. If I can alter anything at any moment, then the fluency is gone. Mm. So that was the, one of the hang-ups that we all have at the beginning, or certainly I did. I think there's some <coughs> truth to that. I think you write differently on a computer than you do by hand. Oh, yes. Um, oh, I yeah. never, I've never used a typewriter. Yeah. But I've, I've written by hand and I've written on a computer, yeah. and they're completely different things. Oh, absolutely. And now so much of my typing involves copy and paste and stuff like this yeah. that, that was never part of when I originally learned to write, yeah. on, even on a computer. Mm. Like that, and, and these things change the work. It, it, they change what people create. How do I, you... I, I mean, do you think I, that's true? Oh, yeah, because, uh, well, let's just look at it this way. I, I spent my life on a typewriter. Mm. Um, and when I say a typewriter, I mean a machine that you have to physically hammer yes. in order to get your words on it, right? Mm. And my children will tell you that their childhood, one of the sounds of their childhood, apart from Tony Hancock's, was hearing this thundering upstairs in the attic. And every time I came home from wherever I'd been, you know, they heard the same thunder. They had the, 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 there's this idea of these children, way down below in the basement, wherever they were, hearing this thump, 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 not quite knowing what it was, but that was the sound of Dad. Yes. Right? Okay. There's another aspect to it, that when I eventually went onto the computer, or whatever we call it now, the word processor and the computer, something didn't work for me. I thought initially it was the fact that it was allowing me to edit too easily and quickly until I discovered it wasn't. What was missing, and it's still missing today, is the physical contact. Now, hold on a minute. When I write, when I think, I write usually on paper, with a pencil, pen. 
But when I think on the typewriter, as I used to do, I'm going to come back into, or come forward into the computer, then I am actually operating on a machine that is not sensitive to my body. So that when I typed on a typewriter, I had to force the words down through the head, through the shoulders, it's through a the arms, activity, yeah. onto that. And I had physical contact with the machine and the words. Hurts. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I haven't got that now. But of course, after all these years, one accepts that one hasn't got it. But I think because one hasn't got it, I've lost something. And it's the same way that I think the worst thing, I, I sit for hours at a computer or a com um, word processor, right? Yeah. And I think that is detrimental to one's writing. I think one should be standing up. Okay. Dad stands up. To yeah. Use his computer. And I think you should be moving around. Mm. In between sentences, I think you should move. I know what you mean. What? It's kind of why, I mean, when I, when I managed to give up smoking, which I'm not giving up at the moment. I'm I'd just, noticed. I'm just lighting one now. One of the things that I miss when I give up smoking about writing mm. is that smoking, especially when I used to smoke inside, mm. meant that, 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 that you write and then you stop and you take a cigarette and that means you assess what you've written right. and there is a an editorial process there and in the internet age that editorial process is going when I use Twitter there's no editorial process <laughs> publish you know that's how quick it is now there's a great de democratic thing about this and there's some great art that can be created through this but it's dangerous to artists because it's potentially going to make us not as good because we're not going to be contemplating things in that kind of way I guess well I'm not pretending to be the artist but no, it certainly I, is detrimental to me in using the internet we are like you say changing the way that we make stuff yes now you do make stuff you might not call yourself an artist yeah but and you've made stuff yeah um, and you've assessed art yes yeah. certainly you, you would say you've got a critical artistic eye yeah you know what would you, that he shrugged then in a kind of suggestive <laughs> that he would agree with me but it was a it was a body language thing what do you think about what the internet is doing we're talking now on a podcast which people are downloading mm. via the internet or they're streaming it mm. on the internet mm. do you think that's a flash in the pan do you think that really books have more value than digital podcasty type things i'm not really in a position to say they've got more value i'm really concerned about and I have been since the uh, initiation of the word processor, it's the lack of touch. It's a sense that has been eroded. I can feel, I can smell, I can see, I can hear, but I can't any longer touch my writing. Yeah. It's a physical inadequacy I feel about it, and I have felt that. It's not dissimilar to... I spent my life in films. When you're in a cutting room, you're in a unit which is absolutely tactile. Everything you do, you pick yeah. up film, you run it through your fingers, you touch it, you feel it, you smell it. It's very sexy, right? Right. And when you work out a pick sink or work out a steam bag, you're actually moving around the room from one to another. You're actually physically in contact with the film. You are creating a story out of these bits and pieces of celluloid, but while you're creating it, you're in touch, literally, T-O-U-C-H, with the, the, the means by which this story is being projected. Now, if I'm in an editing suite, yeah. all I have is images on a wall. They don't smoke, or on a box. They don't look, they don't smell. I can't touch them. I'm remote from them, and I feel I have lost touch well, with them. Well, I'd say that's completely <coughs> right, and there is something we probably have lost. There are probably things we've gained as well. <coughs> Um, and I mean, certainly people can do things now that they never could have dreamed of. I could never have made this podcast. You know, the, the means of production, the, the BBC were the gatekeepers to what I wanted to do. And then I realised a couple of years ago, hang on, they're not actually the gatekeepers. We have access to opening these gates ourselves and we can just walk through them finding an audience style that's hard the bbc can do that much better than i can the market its stuff much better than i can and it's really hard you know to get these podcasts for example out to people but i would say that the human mind is a strange thing 
working as I do now mostly digitally like you say with things that I can't touch so when I edit these podcasts I'm working with sound files that I'm moving around it does feel physical because I'm you're I'm tricking my mind it's really like how a computer game makes someone feel that they're having that physical experience this is the same same sort of thing mm-hmm. that I do feel like I'm lifting physically mm-hmm. the sound files up mm-hmm. um, and but I think that if you started with that connection to things physically, it's very hard to make that transition to completely conceptualising the activity that you're doing. You know, it's, it's, it's an imaginary space. It's like when you're reading a book, you're creating an imaginary world. Well, that's ha- the kind of editing that we do now with digital stuff, mm. I think. Well, I accept what you're saying and I accept the, the process by which you... It, 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 it operates I still say that I miss no I mean and I totally I, I respect what you're saying mm. and I, I think that that is very true mm. and when I think about music music's still something that's quite physical absolutely then, but then when you come to edit it it can feel a little bit dissatisfying mm. because we, you're you're just doing it on a computer screen mm. you're not doing it like when when people mix in studios Wow, they've got all of these physical bits. There's a guy called Darren Heyman, who's a music, musician that I like, who says that he still uses old kit. Yeah. You know, he refuses to do very much on a computer, but mm. when he needs to, he will. Mm. If he can achieve something more mm. on a computer, he will do it. That's the temptation. I mean, I imagine if you were making films now, would you use CGI? It... Doubt it. Don't know. Even if you could do something amazing, I mean, you 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 mostly did. Yes, I would see. I would use it if you know for a particular scene. Yeah, I, yeah for, I wouldn't be. A, a, I would certainly not, in any sense, uh, reject these things. Yes, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't start. That wouldn't be where my starting point was. No, absolutely. But that's how I think it should be. I think that there is a problem. Too many artists now. Their starting point is the technology, rather than the start, oh, no. starting po- point being the art. Mm. And then you find the best way of doing it. Mm. I, I have to work digitally because I want to make podcasts. Mm. But I didn't go. I really want to make digit. I really want to work digitally. How can I do it? Oh, a podcast will fit it. No, I went. I want to make something real, like connect, like like these conversations, like capture something real. But then the best way to distribute that to people is digitally and, mm-hmm. and, and through the internet mm-hmm. so it's a, it's a weird sort of world that we're living in now but you um, know when you're making music you're still in touch with your instrument yes no absolutely most of the time even synthesizers because there definitely is this feeling now with a lot of people that they want to still use analog or they want mm. to still use physical mm. stuff that mm. you touch mm. because it just if it, dust gets in it it, cha- it changes its sound. Mm. Mm. You, you can't get the same sound from a synthetic piano than, mm. you, than you can from a real grand piano. Mm. You just can't. You know, it's, 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 it's ludicrous to try. Where I'm interested in electronics is when you try and make sounds that you can't make anywhere yes. else apart from yeah. on a computer. Mm. That's, what, mm. that's what it's for. Mm. Mm. That's where the interesting sounds are. Anyway, I slightly digress. I was wanting to talk to you about the BBC. Oh. Because didn't you work for the BBC a while back? <laughs> for many years, yeah. And what did you do when you worked at the BBC? I was a producer and a director. Of, it was both Document- non-fiction and yeah. fiction, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. You, Docu- you did- documentary and fiction, yeah. Yeah. And mm. um, was it film pieces then? Well, I did both because, in fact, I started off on film. We started off on film, which was, of course, 16mm film. It was the same from 35mm, which is what I was shooting with when your dad was around at Data. By the time the television world, uh, BBC, came into being in the 60s, really. You don't really need to worry about it too much, Eric. Is it directional? What's, what's nice is the only other person who's been as aware of the microphone, I think. In, in fact, you're probably the most aware because you're aware of the kinds of things I'm going to hear in my headphones as well so you're sort of aware that there's an aeroplane coming across uh, and that it's going to sound sound up most most of my guests aren't really aware of that because they don't they haven't worked with sound equipment before but you have the only other person who was aware of the mic I thought was an actress mm-hmm. who of course mm. because that's what she does she mm. speaks into a, a microphone yeah, yeah. but most people forget about the microphone oh well you know not not not, not ex-film people <laughs> yeah I know exactly and also she's got this stupid headshot yeah, I know that's all right I'm used to that so anyway, yeah. So you made films. So we made films, uh, sixty mil films. Thirty five mil was far too expensive for the television. So we 
developed 60mm film, well, 60mm film had been developed before, but uh, eventually the BBC took 60mm as their sort of uh, standard. What's yeah. the word? Standard film uh, is another word I'm looking for. Okay. Standard means method of, uh, of recording. Uh, quite apart from the studios, of course. And most of us, my stuff was done on film. But I did what they called at one time a conversion course. And that meant they converted me from being a film director um, with a 35 or 16 mil camera, single camera, to a studio director, which is uh, internal in, in studios when you're using four, four or five cameras. Did you enjoy that change or did that... I enjoyed it very much. It was a totally different experience. Because in, in film, you see, you if you're doing drama in film, every single shot you're in charge of. And, uh, you know, every time you complete a shot, you change the angle, you, you start another shot. Whereas in the studio situation, you've got four or five cameras to access, all of which are offering you shots, and you just choose what they're offering mm -hmm. as it comes along, you see. One thing that I put, this is going back now to the internet, or the earlier discussion about word processing. When I first started doing gallery work, which is being in the gallery and, and directing the cameras from upstairs, I found it very, very difficult to be divorced from the actors. Okay. And I got into hot water, or was it cold water, quite a few times by going down to the floor and directing the cameras and the actors on the floor when I should have been in the gallery watching the effect of what was, was happening. Okay. But that came from my experience of just always being close to the camera yeah. and the cameraman. And you wanted to be with him. The beauty of filming is that you have this extraordinary relationship. Forget the actors for a moment. You have got this intimate relationship with your cameraman. And it's so intimate that you're actually you know, physically very close to each other when the take is happening. When you and it's to lose that contact with that mm. person, and to see him only as a unit with a number, in number five camera, number four camera, you know he doesn't breathe, doesn't smell, he's just away. It's it's not dissimilar to the detachment that um, you get with the pro word processor yeah, and yeah. the film. That makes sense. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. the sa same sort of uh, lack of. Uh, touchy feely, and this, I guess, this is an <coughs> another thing that came about through technological development. Absolutely, yeah. So um, anyway, I, 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 Wait, what, what, what do you think is better um, as a creator, though, multi cameras or single camera? I mean, because I, I mean, if you're, I can see the benefit. Like, you, if you've got lots of cameras, you're going to shoot more than you need, aren't you? And then you're going to have to. Uh, well, it doesn't matter. The stock is cheap enough. Okay, but I mean, what, what, what? It's not the stock. It's the it's the it's the setup. It's the whole crew, the setup, the hire of the studios and things. Yeah, but which is the which is which did you find better as a as a filmmaker? Which did you relate to better? I mean, oh, film, right? The film camera, the single camera, because you see, you're absolutely physically, literally, and emotionally in charge of each effing shot. Yeah, it's yours. Yeah, you know, yours and the cameraman's. But whereas when you're in the studio, you are. You're number one, but there's four or five other people with their input, you see, yeah. which you can't really control. No. You can control the selection of shots, of course, but there's just that uh, distancing. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the only... But I think the summation of all that I'm trying to say about internet and also film and, and, and studio is simply the divorce from the tactile. It's yeah. all about being tactile. Film is tactile. Film smells. Film is sexy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you can't have sex from the gallery looking down on five cameras. <laughs> well, you can, but it would be rather exposed. <clears throat> well, it was a bit difficult for me, I must admit. <laughs> but, and you worked for the organisation oh, yeah. for the BBC? Yeah, yeah. Many different departments. I worked in drama, I worked in documentaries, I worked in current affairs, I worked in children's. What else did I work on? S uh, series, serials. Oh, I just had a, a, a very good sort of, uh, what's the word, um, movement around the corporation. Yeah. So I got to know it very well. I got to know the drama side very well and the documentary side very well. And it's worth pointing that out because, in fact, the divisions are very sharp 
or were at that time in 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 the BBC or in television. You were either a documentary person, you were a film person out there, or you were a drama person. Okay. And never the twin met. Right. You just kept apart. Not because you disliked each other. It was just that they were two different worlds. I shouldn't imagine they can afford to do that anymore. I don't know they that they have to share uh, this, the teams at the moment because they're quite uh, hard. It's not so much the teams of the attitudes. They're all it's, well. Maybe maybe you're right. Yeah, maybe you're right. But at that time, there was there was certainly. I mean, even in the, the, we used to have a bar in the, in the television centre. There's a uh, you know the big everyone went into the bar at lunchtime. It was a huge affair, and everybody was there. As you went in the door, the front, there was a there was a table there in front where the kind of concierge bloke there. Yeah, <laughs> and you went left if you were going to documentaries and you went right if you're going to drama <laughs> because all the drama people were over there and all the documentary people were over okay, there okay so they actually still st- remain segregated oh absolutely bar. absolutely yeah okay. and I knew one or two people who actually this is a rare no it's true one or two once or twice I remember going in with a, somebody a producer once took, uh, asked me if I would uh, do a film for him as a director and then he took me, he said, let's meet in the bar. So we got to the bar, and as we walked in the door, he said, I instinctively went left towards the documentary, and he said, uh, uh, no, no, I can't, let's go this way. Oh, no, the, the, vice versa. You know, I went right instead, and he said, oh, I want to go this way. These are the drama people. You know? <laughs> he was in, oh, yeah, there was, a, there was a very distinct difference between... Wow. Yeah, but, I mean, nothing unpleasant. It was just that there are two different um, mediums. When... Reith created the BBC, sort of idea of the BBC, the kind of ethos of the BBC. Love it or loathe it, there was a kind of integrity to it, what the BBC was about. You know, betterment, bettering people's lives, serving the public. You know, you can say, oh, this is very high culture and there's too, you know, that there, there was not, there, it was, he was still of a certain class of people. And so you were still excluding lots of parts of culture that get called low unfairly. Yet there was an integrity to what, that what he was sort of saying. Lord Reith, who was sort of, I'm, I, would you like to describe who Lord Reith is? I'm going to look stupid if I, if I say it. I'll probably get it wrong, but people won't know. Well, he was given the jo- the British Broadcasting Company started in 1922, right? And that was the first time that they ever thought that uh, there could be people out there wanting to listen to us. If you yes. see what I mean. And anyway, by the 1926, it it become the British Broadcasting Corporation because the government took it over yes. and gave it a license. And John Reith started at the beginning in 1922, and then took over as as, as a director general, as they called him. And uh, he had a very, very strong sense of duty, almost, I should mm. think, to, to the nation, which yes. was to entertain and to educate. And he meant that, I think, in the most... Uh, in, the, in, the, in the kindest of ways. Yes, um, I think so. Yes, I mean, he, he, was, he wasn't a philanthropist, but he sort of... He, he, he obviously had this vision that he could see sound perpetrating and being broadcast, literally, to millions of people who went to that time didn't know anything about any of exactly. these subjects he exactly. was going to give them. Exactly. He was going to introduce them. To, uh, they, were, they were to be introduced to everything and anything that we thought would be of interest to them yeah. or of entertainment to them or of stimulation and education yeah. to them. So extraordinarily noble thought. It is. I think it is. And I, he pursued this right the way through the 30s into the 40s. And then he, he left shortly after that. And then, of course, television came along in the 50s, dragging their ideas with them. And, and today, if you, in fact, talk to people in the BBC, they will say, well, of course, we're still operating according to Ruthian principles. No way. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's probably another long story. Well, that, that's <coughs> a story we can go into. Well, fundamentally, what happened was that in the 60s, BBC found its feet as a television company. I mean company in a literal sense of the word, not in a sort of a business sense of the word, right? Yeah. Until that time, there were television cameras and they were broadcasting news and the Derby and probably the Queen's Wedding or whatever it was. But by the 60s, they had had to find a bigger variety of outlets mm-hmm. for the people who were coming in, who had their own bright ideas, and for the 
explanation that wanted to hear and see more. Yes. That was fine, and the adaptation was made. They brought in lots of people from films, like myself, who could help to set it up. And during the 60s, all these programmes that we now know today, all the formats, you know, the monitors, the Melvin Braggs, all these, that was all sort of kind of worked out during the 60s. Mm-hmm. And then after that, they have been revamped or worked on or finessed but fundamentally, it's the same. So you can look at the 60s as being when they laid down the foundations, foundations okay. right? And they were still laying them down with the echo of wreath yes. in their ears, yes. you see? That there was, this was still preaching, we are here to entertain, we are here to educate, we are here to stimulate, and we are here to satisfy, we are here to please. All these noble notions that he had were still being bandied around as what the, the purpose of the BBC but. was. But simultaneously, something else was happening. ITV had come along. Now, ITV were not about these principles. It was an advertising. It was a. It was a business. Yeah, yeah. Com- as, as, as commercial you say. company. Absolutely. Com- absolutely, commercial company. Now, until that time, and even when, during when I was there in the sixties, BBC people wouldn't even talk about ITV. It didn't exist. It was a dirty word. <laughs> you know, it's not us. Till the turn of the 60s, 70s, a problem came about license fees. The license fees were getting a bit dodgy. Every time you needed the license fee to go up, you had to go to the Prime Minister and knock at number 10 and say, do you mind if we have another couple of bob on the license or yeah. whatever it was, you see? And of course, BBC people became slightly more hesitant about doing this. And then I think the crunch came, and this is the real crunch to me, when they said, OK, well, there's another way out of this. We don't have to go the 10 Downing Street. We don't have to beg for more money. We can prove we need it by going for the ratings. Now, it's terribly important for me to mention this to you. Ratings is an assessment of our independent television. You rate the programme according to how many people view it, and therefore you can charge your advertisers more or less. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, all right? Yeah. Now, if you have a free, if you have a free television service, i.e. A, a license pair, you don't need to ask how many people are watching it. You've got your money coming in. Yeah. You don't have to prove anything. No. The proof is what you're doing and yeah. what you're doing. We are trundling out day after day, week after week in various forms, programmes according to the principles laid down by old John Reith. But then, in the 1960s, the turn of the 1960s, 60s, 70s, around that mark, they decided, let's go for the ratings, which is a totally ITV concept, and we'll prove that we need more money. Yeah, and make money as well. That's the other thing that they... they that's another aspect. That's, a, that's, that's another thing. Yeah. And I think that was the beginning of the end. Because BBC to me today, you can quote me on this, you're quoting me, obviously. It's a commercial organisation. But you can't eradicate a culture as cleanly as that. No, I'd say, I mean, and and I see this, I mean, the same thing is the case for, for example, within the library service where I work, Mm -hmm. there is always this weighing up of the need to give the taxpayers as much knowledge as possible and to provide them with what they will pay for. You know, it's always a balance that the library service has to try and find between buying books that no one wants to read because they might be valuable in the future and buying lots and lots of books that will go out all, all, all the time and stuff like that. That's the sort of situation that the BBC is in now because there are people who still have the principles of public service. There are still, they, they're still trying to hit... They're not just trying to hit ratings, they're also trying to hit demographics, aren't they? They, they have to appeal to this person, they have to appeal to that, they have to provide services for, the, for everybody. And that's a good principle, the demographics mm. principle, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, we should be trying to make our publicly funded media work for the whole public. Mm-hmm. What, what? You shouldn't be paying them private salaries then. Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think that the most disgusting thing for definite about the BBC is the salaries that it pays to pretty much everybody over £40,000 a year. Absolutely. Yeah. Everybody that gets more money than that shouldn't be paid that much. 
for example, you could say that that is the same within all councils, that everybody that gets paid very high salaries who works in a council probably shouldn't. But that doesn't mean that we mm. should cut the basic <coughs> services because the basic services are so important, so mm. fundamental. Mm. And my thing with the BBC is I consider it to be a public service and it's better to have the BBC than not have the BBC. Mm. I'd want to reform the BBC massively, mm. like in what they get paid, what you're saying about ratings, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it's probably an unwise thing for me to say this because I'm obviously somebody that wants to get my work on the BBC. But, I, you know, you can only be... as You know, I just it's not my style to be wise in that way. So people will just have to take it or leave it. I believe in the BBC. I want to write stuff for the BBC because I believe in that institution. Mm. However, that does... Because you, if you love something, it doesn't mean you can't criticise it. You know, in fact, if you really love it, you should tell it when it's behaving badly. And the mm. BBC, I think, is behaving badly now. Mm. But that's Have my... Have you told it? Well, I hope maybe they'll hear this and change their minds or maybe they'll they hear this they and blacklist me. No, they don't listen. Well... Well, what do you think about that? I mean, do you think... I don't know, the BBC... Do when I joined the BBC many, many years ago, they used to have... Well, they did have the Radio Times, right? Yeah. I know the back page of the Radio Times, I always remember, was always adverts for garden sheds. God knows why, but that's it. That was the, one of the main sources of income, advertising income. Inside the back page were readers' letters. Right. And I used to read these religiously every week. These were letters written in for... But not readers' letters, listeners' letters. Yeah. They're written by listeners, questioning things. And every time, each letter had a little bit, two or three lines underneath, which is the reply from the, the relevant producer or director, whoever. I don't remember in any of the, these years, 10 years, 12 years, 15 years, I don't remember ever, and I, I'm sure I can prove this physically, any reply saying that I was wrong. The okay. producer. Yeah, well... No, I mean, not one, OK? But nobody can these No, days. wait a minute. I mean, now, that's not these days. This is the 60s. OK, well, okay. maybe ever now, since today, capitalism... Then, today, <laughs> you will find on these... Uh, Roger, what's-his-name's programme, he always comes on with... Um, feedback? Um, feedback. Aha, uh-huh, yes. Exactly. With, uh, Roger, Roger Bolton. Roger Bolton. Wow, look no, at that. Roger, look at that. No, Roger... Listen to that as a podcast, mind but you. But Roger Bolton <laughs> has, every week, someone from some department to come in and answer somebody's question. Yeah. And I've listened to it for years. No one comes from the department and says that he made a mistake. Sometimes they say we met, some mistakes were made, but blah, blah, blah. But there's they, never a forthright. They'll never be completely They can never be wrong. No. No. And that's, that's a terrible weakness to me. So that's... Why don't they just say, look, I th- yeah, I think we probably blew it there. But, you know, the point is that the great thing about the BBC is that it gives you the right to fail. But why don't they also say, we weren't wrong, it's correct to make material that not everybody likes as well. well That's another that. thing that they need they to say. say that I think that they need to say, yeah, they, they need to say that when they're wrong, but they also need to say when they're right. Yeah. Because what happens with this kind of communication, and I guess why I say these days is because it's, it's prevalent across mm. um, lots of different occupations, mm is that, that you can't say no to the consumer. Mm, mm. That's the basic bottom line, and you're right, because the BBC are a company, they can't, they can't say no any, anymore. And they can't say we're wrong either, because that's another thing companies can't be. Companies aren't allowed to be wrong, are they? I mean, that's the thing. But they were, they were allowed to be wrong in the 60s, but they, they still wouldn't admit it. Do you think they were allowed to be wrong in the 60s? Of course they were. So now everybody... There's a lot more PR now, I guess, oh, God, so that yeah. covers everything. Oh up. yeah, yeah. But the BBC were doing PR even then, you were saying. Yeah, so maybe they were at the forefront of the. I guess they're a media company, so they do have to worry about the way that the the public relates. Well, there was a there was an arrogance. I have to admit that there was an arrogance then when they thought, well, wait a minute, you know, well, you, the Ruthian principles are all very well, but I mean, we know. We know best. Well, yeah. We know best. But then Reith, that was, I think that's part of the problem with Could Reith be. originally. Could like, be. I agree that it was noble, but he did think, I know best. He was, initially, the BBC was, I mean, I watched a documentary about this quite recently, and originally the BBC was the arbiter of taste in that it would show what 
you know, the music it would play would be the music of but the No, that's not entirely true because in the 30s they were always playing classical music, yes, in the third programme. But they did, there was an awful lot of what we would have called now, we would now call pop music. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And they were, f- listen, you know, f- programmes like, I don't know what they're called, Forces Sweethearts or something. I don't know. You would, you would so they did have something even. Oh, then, yes. Yeah. You would you, you'd ring in and ask to, 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 for Bing Crosby to be played and so and so to be played. You know, all the stars of the 30s. It was, oh, well, that's good. Oh, yeah. There was a Forces. There was a lot of, during the war, a lot of these programmes that were. That's good Broadcast too. to the... To, That's to, good to, too. To, I guess yeah. that is very good. But what I guess where they're not going or where they weren't going then was into the pockets of society that are not mainstream as well. I mean, that's one of the things that, that, that sometimes I think the job of the BBC is surely to create dialogues between different parts of culture. And you can't do that if you're not showing everybody attitudes changed so initially there were no black people then there were the acceptable face of black people and now you know we've got to a stage where we show black people but still not as widely and variedly as they actually are in real Mm. life Mm. um and you see this with 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 any any part of culture that was was ignored initially by the bbc because it was made by people who who went to Oxford and Cambridge. You can only see things through your own filter. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have people, you need people making it Mm -hmm. from the working class Mm -hmm. who who had backgrounds that we were, now we probably do Mm -hmm. in the, would you say, I mean, the the BBC, is it more, is it more representative of the public now? I don't know because I'm not there anymore. No, and there's been vast true. changes in the last ten years. I mean, I should think considerable changes, particularly in the finances, and they, you know, they've they've uh, they've introduced so many independent companies now to make programs for them. Because in my day, of course, nobody made programs except the BBC themselves. Yes, no, it's, it's so. Oh yeah, out. it's been farmed out, and it's it's it's, it's really broadened the. Uh, the basis on which they are given program, the people who make programs are, are not necessarily BBC people, no, but no. nevertheless the commissioners are BBC. That's true. The, the gatekeepers. The gatekeepers are still BBC. there. Yeah. You think it's a good thing that it's farming out to outside companies? I think perhaps the short answer to that would be yes, simply because um, it was once extremely. It, it had become extremely arrogant, and it was Thatcher. Heavens for that I should ever do an interview <laughs> like this and dare to mention her. It was she who insisted on the on the BBC taking more and more independence. So for that reason, yeah, God bless her. And it certainly moved out. But you see, you move out in various ways. You still move... Many of the independents, and this is probably one of the flaws, you see, many of the independence companies to whom the BBC farmed work at the beginning, that's the 80s and 90s, were actually BBC producers who took early retirement. It was a very crafty business of taking early retirement and then setting up a company and feeding, feeding it back to the to, to mummy and daddy. Okay. Oh yeah, there was a lot of that nepotism went on. That's probably still there. Well, I don't know if it's still there or not. <laughs> Certainly, I I, I wouldn't. <laughs> I, I've never come across it myself in my dealings with independent companies who I'm all for and uh, mm-hmm. hope to work with in future, definitely. Um, anyway, that, that may not be true now, but I mean, it certainly was true in the early days because, of course, these are the people <laughs> who had the experience to make them. Well, yeah, I mean, and, that's, that's, and there is something to mm. that as well. You can't really... That's, and that is part of the problem with the idea of, of making art d- democratic mm. is that that means that people who have no... It means that... There are no gatekeepers, but it also means that people don't have to graft in an organisation mm. learning a trade. Mm. And so that there is a certain discipline in that that, that, that I think is, has benefits in some, for, for, some, for some creative people. It's, mm. it's beneficial and we're losing that kind of element. Very frustrating. There's so much that I haven't talked to you about that I wanted to talk to Good. you about. Good. Did I divert you then? Well, I was... Yeah, I guess Good. so. I mean, not not really. The thing is, you never know how long a segment will last. Or how long an answer will be. Yes, that's, there's that too, but that's all good. I, I, I wanted to talk to you about be, your time in the Navy. 
Oh, on national service? I guess it oh. was a national yeah, service. Yeah, so yeah. All, I'm, all I know is Navy. I mean, I, I talked to Dad and said, what do you think that, 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 that I should talk to Eric about? And he's like, well, I'm sure he'll talk about his time in the Navy. No, I won't. Well, you haven't. So no, he's, I, he's haven't. I haven't. I haven't been wrong. asked to anyway. But now I am, yeah. But you see, it's, it's strange you say that, because in fact, it's, it's um, unlike... <laughs> I suppose, look, after I left university, which was a great, great time for me, I then did my national service, and then I went scratching around Soho to get a job in documentaries, you see. And somehow, the leap, the link was from the document, from the university to documentaries. And you kind of phased out the... And the, the yeah, it was a kind of an service. incidental. And, I, and I, if I sit down now and think, oh, yeah, we did that, we did that. But there was nothing terribly important. It was a kind of um, holding operation, almost. Well, you know, well, I got down to the real nitty-gritty of what I was going to do because by that time I had, I knew that I was going to get into films or documentary films. You know, I had been brought up in the tradition of Gerson and the thirties and the forties and and and, and the fifties. Gerson's a documentary filmmaker. Gerson was the, the daddy of the doc, or documentary yeah. films. Yeah, yeah. Very um, important um, in the movement. Yeah, and he had a number of disciples like um, Harry Watt and Basil, whatever. Oh, uh, never mind, I don't have to list all these names. Basil Knight. I know all these names now yeah, because yeah. of dad, all of the dad's BFI stuff. Uh, I've, you I've, I've heard a lot more about that yeah, side of his life. Yeah, would. And, um, I haven't well, actually talked to him about that on the podcast, but not, not yet. And one of them was a guy called Stuart Legg who actually got me into films in the end. That was the man who introduced me to data. But that's... So that therefore, this I tell you, I think what I'm trying to say is that if you ask me a uni- about university life or about film life or about BBC or about writing and about computers and things, they're all something in which I have been actively engaged. Uh, a national service was sort it? of uh, to you? a transit camp. Yeah. In my life. Well, I'm sure that's how it is for yeah for mo- for many many people. Yeah. No, because it, what you weren't uh, you you didn't join the navy. You uh, no, you just had to go through this yeah. little process before you came out into the you know that you had this uh, this cocoon beautifully cocooned life of university. Well, what do you think about um, <coughs> national service then, having been through it? Oh, I didn't, didn't didn't give me any trouble. I mean, you know, I just just went through it. But yeah. whether you look upon you, it, as but what a, do you think of the actual? What do you think the notion of it? Uh, yeah, they're talking about bringing it back just at the minute. Oh yeah, but they're talking. They've been talking about bringing it back for a long time, and the the reasons they talk about bringing it back is it's, it's a kind of punishment almost yeah. to, the, to the to the young people who, well, this who is the riots, wear the trousers in the right yeah. direction or whatever it is. You know, it's all this nonsense. Yeah. Um, Having said, and of course the idea that introducing, why should you send them to the army? I mean, if I was an army officer, I'd say, I don't want these buggers. You know, <laughs> you know why t- chuck them in the army? Why don't you chuck them in the BBC? Okay. You see what I'm driving at? Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a really good solution. Absolutely, yeah. Give, yeah. give them the BBC. Give them the media. No, punish give the buggers. The yes, yeah, yeah. I'll put them in ITV. <laughs> punish the bastards, you know. But I mean, the idea you put them in the army. To no, train, train them up. Train them up. Train them, them up to be better at, at rioting if they want to use it in that way. Like, you yeah. know, that, that's why it's, I mean, the, the army does train people to be better at being physically, you know, being, at being aggressive. Uh, exactly. You know, it, it trains people to be better at that. Yeah. So why would you use that as a, a way to civilize society? I certainly wouldn't use it as no. a way to civilize. I'm not saying you would. But, I, but <laughs> I, do, I do, I nevertheless will say one thing in its favor. Yeah. There are many things to say in its favor. It's the fact that when you do national service, people come from all parts of the country and all areas of the country socially. They all come together and they all have to do the same thing. Yes. They all have to be taught the same. They all have to share the same barrack room. Mm. They all have to clean their boots in the same way. They all have to get up and shave at a certain time in the morning. The other if you're in my in my case you had to have the you know, six inches between each hammock which you strung and you and not six and a half and not seven either and not yeah. four. You know, there was there was a discipline involved in it. And after you've done that, resenting it deeply for about six weeks or or eighteen months or whatever it is, yeah, you actually <laughs> you know not to let your sn- socks smell because it will disturb the next bloke. 
Okay. You see what I mean? Yes. If you're all living together, you start to understand, oh, Christ, if I do this, he will not benefit from it. Because I'm not benefiting from what... It helps you socially develop. Ah, there's no question of that. Yeah. So that would be its positive element. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm not necessarily against the idea of uh, national programmes to help people to... Uh, mix with different classes mm, and different mm, people and mm. one of the things I thought was very interesting about when I talked to dad about his war experience was just how his exposure to working class people in the army completely changed yeah. the way that he viewed well I don't think it changed the way he viewed because he was already a, a, a left wing before he mm-hmm. went in the army mm-hmm. but he, it, it meant that he knew you know it wasn't a theory it was an actual fact you know he'd sure. exper- he's experienced it and he'd, he'd been with other people and he had to find commonalities between him and other people yeah and and that, i can see that there's a value in that i mean in, in a way that's a very mild that that's a very extreme version of what i'm trying to do with this with this very podcast is, mm-hmm. is to 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 cut to, to to find commonalities between me and mm. the people I'm talking mm. to where I can. It has another good aspect to it, by the way, the national service, and yeah. that is that the fifty people or the forty or the twenty people you're mingling with and have to live with and smell with. Yeah. They're actually coming not just from all parts of the society, they're coming from all parts of the country. Yes. Right? Spot on. And today, yeah. you know, it's either you're from Peckham yeah. or you're from Liverpool. Yeah. Or you're from Newcastle, or you're from somewhere else, and th- there's no integration. There's all this rivalry, inter-city rivalry, it goes on all the time. You don't, you know, you you don't understand that the bloke in Liverpool is in fact a, a half brother of yourself. Yeah, yeah. You yeah, know, yeah, in yeah. Peckham, you do in in the navy, on the army, and the and the, the forces. You just you, it's people from all, all walks of life, but all areas of yeah, yeah. of the of the country. And you think, oh, we're all roughly the same anyway. Yeah, absolutely. But you, there's, there's, there's been more and more, there are just as many, we talk about divisions in society today between the upper, the lower, and the middle class and all these sort of funny expressions we use, all of which are no doubt valid. But we also have this unhappy division of the nation into people in Bristol, people in Cardiff, people in Newcastle, yeah, yeah. people in... The, you know, and uh, in Yorkshire and, pe- and and people in, in Liverpool. You know, we kind of we're all different. That's the national service brought that. Yeah, b- brought that together much better than just the, cl- the this difference in classes. No, no, I mean absolutely. <coughs> that's a uh, that's a great point, and and I'm sure the same was the case in the war. I mean, in the army, that, that he oh, yes. been with different people in. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 and you're, you're absolutely right. I yeah. mean, I feel quite lucky in that I've lived in so many parts of the country. Yeah. that I don't have that that kind of feeling about things. Yeah, but you're unusual. Yeah, exactly. No, mm. I'm I'm aware of that. Mm. So I'm I, I know I'm lucky to have had it. Mm. But I guess everybody of your generation who was a man that would have been in in in, uh, in national service, yeah, they, they'll have all had a touch of that. You know, people in London have it quite a lot as well because a lot of the time every. A workforce in London will have been so and so's come down from Blackpool, and so and so's come from uh, Cornwall, and someone else, mm. and you know, someone's come from Jamaica. You yeah, know, it'll be a, a workforce that that will. I mean, that's that's what that's what people talk about when they talk about metropolitan versus yeah. parochial yeah. Yeah. thinking. I mean, there is a there is a truth in that in London, people work with people from other parts of the country, and so they don't have that kind mm. of division. Mm. Not that I'm all like, Lon- you know, London's great. I know I know why people resent London. They they resent it because there's a lot of money here, and there isn't a lot of money up north where, where, where I've worked and, and lived. Sure, sure. The last thing that I ask people, Eric, uh, I don't know what you're going to say to this, but I doubt you'll say anything. We'll see. Is, do you have anything that you want to plug as in promote do I have anything I want to plug as in promote yeah normally I don't say the as in no 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 I understand I think I try I understand it's a it's an enormous question (laughs) it really is because um, you know a few people have said that uh, well I have to join the band of the few uh, people who have said that (laughs) Um, if, if I'm trying to think of what I would want to plug if I wanted to plug something. Would I want to plug a political point? Would I want to plug 
a financial point? Would I? Oh, I don't know. It's so vast a question. I have no. I'm not actually. Um, I'm not actually. Uh, if I'm well balanced, it's because I've got a chip on both shoulders. So I'm not really. I'm not really. <laughs> I've, I've, not, I've, I've not really sort of. I'm not really. Uh, look, I haven't. Uh, I know what I'm trying to say. That I ha at the moment I'm not on any particular crusade. Right. I may have opinions about <laughs> crusaders, <laughs> but I'm not carrying the banner. Or if that. you would like to be more specific and ask me something well, then, about what I think about architects, well, let's. Well, I think that's a fair that's a fair point. I mean, the 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 reason I asked the question is is double really. It, initially, it was there was only one reason. It was I want people to get the most out of having appeared on the show. And if someone's a lot of my friends are in bands or whatever, or they've got a website or yeah. whatever to promote, then yeah. I want them to be able to to do that that's yeah. a g good thing as they've got an audience they should yeah. they should be able to say that that's a big part of who they are quite often yeah. I mean I can tell stories because I mean if, you, if, you, if, if you've lived a few years you've been to a few places and each one has a band of stories around it yes and if you could start I could say oh I, I remember when I was in India or I remember in South America or I remember when I climbed in the Himalayas yeah, this is all the stuff I wanted. To, this yeah, is the stuff I had to, to to jettison for time. Really, exactly. I wanted to talk to you about living in Northern Ireland and all sorts of things. Yeah. But 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 um. <coughs> so the and the other the other thing that it's become about is that a few people took it the way that the you're saying really is a, an opportunity to say something, you know, like one of my friends said, if you believe in something, act on it. Don't just have the belief. I don't know if this is good advice or not, but this is what she said. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, other people have, have, have said things like that. But, I mean, if there's nothing that you have that you want to plug, you don't have to plug it. You can say no. It's a question. Oh, look, I could plug a dozen things if I was given the lead. I thought, oh, we're talking about this, we're talking about that now. Yeah, well, I mean, what I feel is so and so and so. Well, but, OK, I mean, well, no, considering no, 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 what we've no, talked no. about today, there's nothing that you want to... <laughs> no, I don't think so. I mean, I think you've very <laughs> clearly kind of promoted some some opinions and points of view today. So I guess you've already done it a little bit. Everybody normally already has. Well, I don't know. I've just answered some of your questions. Yeah, but the thing is, answering a question is reveals. It reveals. Asking a question reveals as well. Anything that is said reveals of the person who says it. So... Anyway, you don't have anything particularly to plug at the moment. No. You don't have any writing or anything about that people can get hold of? Or films that you want, that are available for people to get hold of? Oh, if I went to the BBC, I could I could get copies of all my films. Yeah, it would cost me about 150 quid a time. But yeah, <laughs> I had a similar emotion when I went to an awards ceremony and I was really glad and then I found out how much you have to pay to go to the actual ceremony. <laughs> I know what you mean. Uh, yes, it's, I think it's also a question of well, okay, uh, look, I, I did the, I did all these films. I'm not sort of standing up saying I did all these films. You know, you must come and see my retrospective yeah. at the Curzon Theatre. I mean, you know, one isn't in that class. Uh, one did a job, and um, I was very happy in doing the job, very privileged in yeah. doing the job in many ways. But it's not available for you to sh to get to get other people to go to. That's the thing. That well, I don't. Not only that, I don't think it's necessary for other people to, to, to sort of sit down and see 10 or 15 of my, or 25 of my films. No, so no, no. what? Fair enough. You I know. can see your point. I mean, they have other things to do. There's, there's more to read. and there's other You wrote a book, didn't you, that was published? Is that available? <coughs> I wrote a couple of books that were published. Ah. We're not, we're not, we're not going to get into that. Well, I say we're not going to get into that because they didn't get anywhere. And there's, no, there's no point. It was, I, was, I was glad. In fact, I'd written a number of short stories about the Second World War, and humorous, or se not well, semi-humorous, and they were broadcast to BBC. And, um, and then this publisher came along and said, here, look, can I publish these? And I said, yeah, sure. He said, well, we need a few more. So I wrote a few more. But it was an extraordinarily hectic time, and they produced them. I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote at one summer to fill the quotation that was needed. And they, because of the publishing problems they had, they, had to, they published it without my... <laughs> without my editing it. Yeah. In other words, I just sort of wrote it. About 125, 140,000. 
words, and they should have been. I centered it in thinking they were going to say, well, that's it, that's fine. Now we're going to cut it down. Now cut it down to so-and-so. And it didn't happen. Oh, God, an editor's so important. Oh, I mean, and, the, and that was a very... And apart from the fact they put a stupid cover on the front, which is just... It was yuck. But never mind. It's that's a, what I'm always worried about. Yeah. I mean, that's what I really do worry about sometimes. I think, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I want these things to get published, mm. but then what if they... What if they get published so you know so badly that it makes me cringe and uh, well that's a shame. That was, a, that was a dreadful shame because there were some good things in them in both these books. There was another one as well, and there was there was some yeah I will say it myself yeah there were some good things in them but the, certainly in the first volume it, it didn't come through because it was so cluttered and uh, so what there's no crusade no. I mean, this is this has been probably the the most involved plug section of the show that, that I've had, which I think is a good thing. It's good to have uh, the concept of plugging challenged uh, 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 a little bit. Have um, I been plugging? No. Well, what well, what you've been doing is not plugging. <laughs> and the, <laughs> the last thing that I say to people to end the show is, do you want to say goodbye to the audience? Well, if I would say goodbye to the audience, if in fact I had even said hello to them. Well, yeah, well... But I haven't, ever, I haven't actually met them You've yet. never met them, so you, okay, no. you can not say goodbye to them if you want to. But, I mean, if you are uh, <laughs> s- so stuck for something useful to do that you will listen to this, well, good luck to you and goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> this Friday on GBA, get even better acquainted with Eric as I talk to him and my dad in the sequel to the conversation you just heard. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter, at GBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook, it's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website, www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk. You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.